Welcome to the podcast Bench Talk. I'm Jo Hilditch, High Sheriff of Herefordshire. Rather than one of my regular Bench Talks, today I'm presenting the Shrevel Lecture 2021. This year I was lucky enough to engage Dominic Grieve as the speaker for this annual event, which is taking place in the Town Hall Hereford and which is entitled Populism and the Rule of Law, to be feared or applauded. I'm passing over to His Honour Daniel Pierce Higgins, the Honorary Recorder of the City of Hereford, to make the proper introduction of our esteemed speaker. Thank you, Daniel. Our speaker tonight, the Right Honourable Dominic Grieve, QC, is a little introduction. He is a lawyer of many years' experience, practising at the bar in London. He's been in Parliament for something like 20 years until 2019. And during that time, he was also a member of the government for four years as the Attorney General a significant post, being the senior government law officer in Parliament, in the government. His chosen topic tonight is populism, and he will speak on that for three quarters of an hour or so, and when that's when he's finished, he's kindly said he'll take some questions. And I suppose at about 8.15 or so, Joe will decide he's had enough and <laughs> being proceeding to a halt. So, Dominic Green. Well, thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to have been invited here by your High Sheriff, Uh, to give this talk. Um, I have to say that getting me to Herefordshire is always easy. Um, Childhood stays in the north of the county at Croft Castle when I was a boy, and leisurely summer holidays in adolescence near Colwell with a lot of cycling and walking to explore the countryside and visit churches makes it one of my favourite places to which I will always come back uh, with alacrity. Now, in this case, however, the kind invitation has come with a small sting attached, or perhaps I should say a challenge. Your High Sheriff, whose principal duty in her year of office is to support the administration of justice, the prevention of crime and the upholding of the rule of law in your shire, suggested to me that I should come and talk on the relationship of populism and the rule of law. As a lawyer who's also had a career in politics, part of it as Attorney General, the Ministerial Legal Advisor to Government, I'm rather mindful that this is a controversial topic. And the last few years have seen plenty of criticism directed particularly at lawyers such as myself, but principles of the rule of law are being invoked to deny a majority of the public, sometimes expressed to me in angry emails as the will of the people, what they want. It's not just actually about Brexit, although this certainly highlighted the tension between the principle of parliamentary sovereignty and the implementation of the outcome of a referendum. It's also about human rights law, the role of the judiciary in interpreting, some critics would say, rewriting law. There's even a judicial powers project run by a major think tank to look at this. And most recently, the government has committed to changing the powers of the courts to restrict the judicial review of administrative decisions by the executive, of which the Supreme Court decision to declare null and void the present Prime Minister's prorogation of Parliament in 2019 is often cited as a glaring example. More generally, there is, as I know from my time as an MP, a lot of criticism that government and parliament are soft on crime, soft on deporting undesirable aliens, hide behind the law and principles of the rule of law to justify doing nothing. 
Some politicians agree as well. The current Home Secretary's anger at her inability to stop migrants crossing the Channel springs to mind. So what I want to try and do this evening is to try to put some historical as well as current legal and political perspective on this issue. This isn't, and I want to emphasise this at the outset for those of you who thought this would be a polemical diatribe on my part, it's not because I consider there to be some clear answer to how the relationship between the two should work, but it's because, as the High Sheriff has suggested, the subject is actually very important. If the rule of law, as it operates to frame our lives, forfeits popular support, then you've got a problem. But before we do that, we need to briefly consider populism as an ideological position. It's nowadays much term used as a term of criticism. Indeed, I have to admit to using it myself in a critical context to describe our current Prime Minister. <laughs> this is because it's come in many cases to be associated with a politician playing to the gallery through gimmicks, short-term policies, disregard for truth, acting regardless of the underlying facts, seeking to gain and maintain popularity and thus power by doing so. President Trump, leaders such as Messrs Bolsonaro, Erdogan and Orban have all been so described. But this wasn't its original meaning. The dictionary definition is, I quote, a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. Seeing that the United Kingdom started extending the suffrage away from just elite groups from the Great Reform Act of 1832 and achieved universal suffrage in 1928, and this is now central to our democracy, it would be a foolish government that failed to try and appeal to ordinary people. Because if you do, then they'd be justified in looking elsewhere to give their support. And that must mean not only taking into account the views of those who are vocal and take a close interest in political issues, but also those who are not and do not, at least on the assumption that they might decide to turn out and vote. It was, I think, President Roosevelt, who on standing for re-election, was congratulated on a speech. His admirer said, it must make every thinking American vote for you. He replied that in order to be elected, he needed more than the votes of thinking Americans. <laughs> when I was reported as Attorney General in 2011, as saying at a seminar when the coalition government was being accused of populism, that my experience was that on the contrary, it was the least populist government I'd ever encountered, with evidence-based decision-making the byproduct of the existence of the coalition, to my considerable amusement, David Cameron buttonholed me outside a cabinet meeting when he'd heard about this and told me he agreed entirely with my analysis, but went on to add, I'm concerned that this is our problem. There's therefore always going to be a robust dialogue to be had between the political classes, their professional advisers, and the wider public on policy, including law and order. Here are some examples that illustrate this. The first concerns punishment for crime, and particularly serious crime. Throughout my time in politics, the concern at being seen as soft on crime and thereby forfeiting popular support has haunted both main political parties. 
Think of Michael Howard and his desire to raise the minimum tariff on the child killers of James Bulger, who'd committed murder at an age where they were only just within the age of criminal responsibility. But even a liberal reformist such as Tony Blair felt the need to sloganise tough on crime as well as tough on the causes of crime. And I can think of no government in the last 30 years that has not, in response to public disquiet over crime, created new criminal offences where an existing one already covered the matter or not sought to raise maximum sentences for some existing ones. The consequence of this trend is that despite my past constituents regularly telling me that the courts have gone soft on crime, the statistics show a steady increase in sentencing tariffs for most offences. With it, the prison population has grown from around 44,000 in 1993 to around 80,000 today, and it's still rising. With all the problems of overcrowding and the attendant inability to deliver properly managed rehabilitation programmes that go with it, a Labour government initiative to introduce indeterminate sentences for public protection for offenders thought dangerous despite their offence potentially being very minor has, despite their abolition, resulted in 1,700 prisoners still being incarcerated years after the tariff for their offence has expired and nine years after this form of sentence was abolished. With this, there's been a growing public pressure to criminalise negligent behaviour. When I studied for the bar, the basic principle was that an act of ordinary negligence, a mistake lots of people make in their daily lives, fortunately for most of us with minimal consequences, as opposed to gross negligence involving the willful disregard of risk, such as can constitute manslaughter, should either not be criminal at all, or if it was, it was treated as a quasi-regulatory offence. So, it was not uncommon for me to represent a driver who, swerving instinctively to avoid an animal, had caused a multi-vehicle pile-up with fatalities and ended up with no more than a fine and disqualification from driving. Since then, however, Parliament has brought in first an offence of causing death by dangerous driving, which reduced the degree of negligence previously needed for causing death, and then brought in the far more fundamental shift of making a person who causes death by ordinary negligence, carelessness, liable to imprisonment. A lot of lawyers, judges, but not, I should say, in public, and criminal justice professionals have been disquieted by these developments, which are seen as making the law excessively harsh, serving little purpose in terms of proportionate punishment or, indeed, deterrence. But that may not be the view of the wider public, unless, through the prosecution of an individual known to them, they've experienced its consequences more directly. Public pressure is, in any event, not necessarily all one way. Enjoying, as we do, a system of trial by jury for all indictable offences, we've had instances of juries exercising their right to acquit in some controversial cases involving national security, such as that of the civil servant Clive Ponting in relation to the leaking of documents concerning the sinking of the Belgrano in the Falklands War, when his own admissions meant that there was no defence in law to the indictment. So well understood is this possibility that recently the government argued that there was no need in the forthcoming bill to update the Official Secrets Act to provide a public interest defence for whistleblowers disclosing state secrets, 
as they argued that no jury would ever convict if they considered the disclosure justified. This, I have to say, to my mind, was a grossly improper position for the government to take, suggesting juries should ignore their oath and return a verdict, uh, uh, to return a verdict on the evidence, and I'm pleased that the public interest defence is now going to be included. But it illustrates that no serious offence can be convicted and punishment imposed in England and Wales without the participation and verdict of independent members of the community that make it up. In the last 60 years, MPs on occasion have changed the law against the clear wishes of the majority popular opinion at the time. 1965, Parliament abolished the death penalty for murder, and in 1969, finally removed uh, and, uh, and later finally removed it for murder. In uh, 1969, finally removed it for high treason and piracy in 1998. Yet opinion polls show that in 1965, the public wanted it retained. In subsequent debates, MPs who wanted it restored repeatedly invoked public opinion to no avail even if it was always a free vote in the Commons. It was not until 2015 that a majority endorsed, public opinion majority endorsed abolition. Interestingly, abolition of course coincides with the start of an upward drive in the length of sentences for serious offences, a change perhaps directly linked to a desire by government and the judiciary to show it was still taking violent crime Seriously. Final example, 1966. Group of liberal-minded MPs campaigned successfully and voted to decriminalise homosexual acts between consenting adults carried out in private. Today, with LGBTQ equality issues prominent and widespread public acceptance of diverse sexual orientation, it's perhaps worth remembering that this modest change did not enjoy popular support either. Public opinion at the time was the other way. Supportive MPs were probably rather fortunate that their vote took place before the advent of social media, or the trolling might have been pretty fierce. Central in any change to the law is the role of Parliament, and in particular the House of Commons, in enacting or repealing legislation sometimes under pressure from, but also at times irrespective of popular opinion. Parliament may provide the lead for public opinion to change on the subject, as happened with decriminalising homosexual acts, or bringing in breathalyser laws to stop people driving under the influence of alcohol. But in some cases, governments have found, as with the poll tax of the late 1980s, that the public opposition is sufficient to endanger the government's electability and even exceptionally to threaten public order. So the law has then had to be repealed or significantly amended. But what normally has not been in doubt is the principle at the heart of our constitution we refer to today as parliamentary sovereignty. The Queen in Parliament, acting with the consent of her Lords and Commons, exercises power unlimited by any other lawful authority. At least in theory, it means that any government with a parliamentary majority could pass a bill requiring us to worship the moon every other Tuesday, and provided, I suppose, the Queen were minded to give royal assent to it. One might hope she wouldn't, but she hasn't been done since the reign of Queen Anne to refuse it. Um, it becomes the law of the land, and we can be punished for not complying. Now, that may sound fanciful, 
But it was effectively what happened in the 1530s when Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy showed the ability of the king with parliamentary consent to coerce his subjects on matters of the deepest conscience and belief, used the revolutionary effect to overturn the existing order of Catholic Christianity under papal authority in England, an order that most contemporaries considered permanent and immutable. When the struggle between Crown and Parliament was resolved in the latter's favour in the 17th century, the Bill of Rights of 1689 was enacted and created the powers and privileges that Parliament has today. It's with those powers and privileges that Parliament, at, at, at the behest of the then Conservative government, enacted the European Communities Act, which gave primacy to EU law in this country, and again in 2019, in response to the 2016 referendum result, enacted legislation to abolish it, only by the end of 2020 to enact further legislation to extend it to the end of that year, and then again to retain bits of it for Northern Ireland only, some current subject of some controversy, so that the principle of our country being a single economic unit is now significantly altered. As we have, unlike most Western democracies, no written constitution to provide a framework of what is or is not acceptable for a government to do, all these important legislative changes pose, in theory, no fundamental constitutional questions at all. But to this doctrine of untrammeled sovereignty, there is also closely linked the idea that this sovereign power of action will, in practice, in our country, only be exercised within certain limits. Recently, five, six years ago, we commemorated the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. Now, I don't think we were so much remembering a historical event. Most people have only the vaguest notion what it was about. But the creation of a national narrative, perhaps myth, of legal and political exceptionalism centering on freedom under law. The barons who got King John's assent had preoccupations far removed from our own, dealing with a king operating outside the norms of kingship of the early 13th century, and certainly not the 21st. But if as a peace treaty it was a failure, it became embedded in our national consciousness as guaranteeing certain rights and liberties. I was struck by the fact that only this summer it was being invoked in Edinburgh, of all places, by a small crowd of anti-vaxxers who claimed the right under Clause 61 of the Charter to assail the monarch by seizing her castle until the government dropped Covid regulations with which they disagreed. The fact, the fact that Section 61 has not existed since 1216, and it never applied to Scotland anyway, as its brief existence long predates the Union, didn't seem to discourage them one iota. The Charter was important because it reduced the ability of the Crown to raise money by arbitrary fines or levies, and that led directly to the creation of our parliamentary system, because the King needed parliaments to approve general taxation. And once the Commons emerged as a distinct body by the end of the 13th century, that practice was institutionalised. But, as importantly, the Charter expresses an insistence on concepts of justice which were seen by the barons as being overarching and apparently inherent to the land of England, particularly noticeable in the two clauses, 39 and 40, which survive to this day. 
which respectively concern the prohibition of punishment without due process of law and the promise not to delay or deprive a person of justice, still cited today as the defining statements of the rule of law and the limits of arbitrary state power. The Charter also speaks generally of the law of the land, the law of the kingdom, and the law of England. What exactly that was supposed to be was certainly not written down in 1215, but it was supposed, at least in theory, to offer men full justice according to their status. In the hundred years after the Charter was sealed, it was being used and invoked repeatedly. In 1297, it became a statute. We can even see peasants using it in the early 14th century to complain of their lord's bailiff's behaviour in a manorial court. Kings were required to reissue it on their accession. It was extended six times in the 14th century. By the middle of the 15th century, we have a Chief Justice Fortescue writing a treatise of De Laudibus Legum Angliae in praise of the laws of England. And his work is an absolute study in English exceptionalism. He says, the King of England can't alter or change the laws of his realm at his pleasure, something that remained highly relevant in 2016 as to who had the power to trigger Article 50 to leave the EU. And he contrasted this with a practice elsewhere in Christendom. He deprecated the use of torture, lauded the system of trial by jury and its uniqueness to England, and said, he would rather 20 evildoers to escape death through pity than one man be unjustly condemned. When I was appointed Attorney General, I had to take an oath of office, which dates from the high years of Tudor despotism. I noted with interest that I was required to say, I will truly and duly minister the Queen's matters and sue the Queen's process after the course of the law and after my cunning. Cunning in the 16th century meant wisdom, not the Blackadder sort of. <laughs> I will duly and in convenient time speed such matters as any person shall do in law against the Queen as I may lawfully do, without long delay, tracting or tarrying the party of his lawful process in that that to me belongeth. Thus I was being required to say that as the Queen's lawyer, and lawyer to her government, I was not going to breach the term of Clause 40 of the Charter, or abuse my position to delay justice against the government uh, for anyone else. But it's easy to get carried away with these idealizations of the unique liberties and rights that we might enjoy through this history. Lord Sumption has highlighted that charters of rights weren't uncommon in medieval Europe. They were, in any case, routinely ignored. English monarchs authorized torture in breach of the common law by special warrant under the Privy Seal. Exactly the same, I might add, as what President Bush did for the CIA after 9-11. Juries were rigged and coerced, and juries bullied by judges, being bullied by judges has continued well into modern times. Justice was also bought and denied. And under Henry VIII, Parliament was briefly overruled and allowing the creation of criminal offences by proclamation albeit not without protest. But it did provide a fertile seedbed for parliamentary lawyers to try to limit royal executive power. In the 17th century, Sir Edward Cook, the Chief Justice of James I, defied the king and argued that his sovereignty was limited by rules of natural law, not just by the need to government through Parliament. James had not exactly helped himself. Um, when the king 
in exercise of prerogative rights, demanded that proceedings challenging the Crown's right to grant a benefice be stayed, Cook had refused, saying it was contrary to law and the judge's oath. Cook then developed the idea of an ancient constitution coming from the Anglo-Saxons, which had been subverted. This was, if I have to say to you, complete myth. There's no evidence of this from the Anglo-Saxons whatsoever, but it makes a good story. Later he went further and said that in many cases the common law will control acts of parliament and sometimes adjudge them void. For when an act of parliament is against common right or reason or repugnant or impossible to be performed, the common law will control it and adjudge it to be void. In the 18th century, the great lawyer Blackstone dismissed this last statement in his commentaries as erroneous, because if it was right, it implied that ultimate authority lay with the judiciary and not with Parliament. But the ghost still lurks. The Bill of Rights of 1689 asserted the primacy of Parliament over the will of monarchs and their ministers, created the principle that the actions of Parliament could not be challenged in any court and that its statutes are open to interpretation but cannot be contradicted or overturned. But the justification for the Bill of Rights was that King James II had sought to subvert and extirpate the laws and liberties of the kingdom. So what if it's the government of the crown with a parliamentary majority which seeks to do this? what I think the late Lord Hailsham described as the tyranny of the majority. On this, of course, the Bill of Rights is silent. The Lords and Commons in Parliament saw themselves as the upholders and not the underminers of their reinvented tradition of Magna Carta. But the issue's never entirely gone away. Take a few examples. It was at the root of the argument of the American colonies in their Declaration of Independence, complaining of Parliament's oppressive taxes, and it led afterwards to Congress enacting a US constitution that actually gives primacy to their judges to limit what Congress can do. The idea of some form of overarching political legal rights was invoked at the time of the Great Reform Act of 1832, the Chartists in the 1840s, the suffragettes in demanding votes for women and resorting to violence when legislation to achieve it was blocked by a parliamentary majority. Those standing on the steps of the Dublin Mansion House in 1919 to proclaim the Doyle Erin repudiated UK parliamentary sovereignty in Ireland in the name of the sovereignty of the Irish people. Today, the same might conceivably happen again in Scotland, whatever the United Kingdom Parliament and Government might say. After the 2016 referendum, it was argued by some supporters of Leave that it constituted a return of sovereignty from Parliament to the people whose will, expressed in the outcome of the referendum, turned both the executive and MPs thereafter into mere agents for its implementation, and I have to say traitors if they tried to moderate its full intent, or urged that the issue might merit some further consideration. And despite the fact the scope of government action being hedged around with conventions as to how the state will normally behave, they have in practice often been ignored when a government is facing threats to public order and national security, or even simply on the grounds of administrative convenience or political advantage, where there's a sufficient parliamentary majority to do this. 
We saw fundamental conventions on liberties working to stop the then Labour government when it wanted to enact 90-day and 42-day pre-charge detention. But conventions often failed to prevent the abuse of power by public authorities towards vulnerable, unpopular, or relatively powerless groups, be it the elderly, children in care, detainees. Most tellingly, governments can even ignore deeply respected principles when enacting legislation, if they have a majority. We touched on Clause 40 of Magna Carta prohibiting exile, but as was shown in the Bancourt case in the House of Lords in 2009, this didn't actually prevent a government making a law to authorise the exile of the inhabitants of the Chagos Archipelago from the British Overseas Territory to other places and removing them permanently from that island home. So harking after the simplicities of untrammeled parliamentary sovereignty is perhaps a little bit dangerous, although it now seems rather popular in our country, or at least in England, as long as it's being used to do the things which individuals want to see done. But it does collide rather quickly with the way in which the rule of law has developed in the last century, largely through the efforts of successive United Kingdom governments. Despite pride in sovereignty, Successive governments have sought to make the world a better, safer, more predictable place by participating in and encouraging the creation of international agreements governing the behaviour of states. When I was Attorney General, I once asked the Foreign Office how many treaties the United Kingdom was signed up to. They were unwilling, to my regret, to go back before 1834, because I can promise you there are quite a few treaties that do go back before 1834. But since then, they told me that they had a record of 13,200 such treaties, and the figure has now risen to about 14,000, making the United Kingdom probably the greatest treaty-making power in world history. Most are still applicable. They range from the UN Charter, promoted by Eleanor Roosevelt as a Magna Carta for the 20th century, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, local fishing agreements, 700 contain mechanisms for binding dispute resolution in the event of disagreements over their interpretation. And increasingly, be they the European Convention on Human Rights, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the treaty creating the International Criminal Court, they deal not just with interstate relations, but with standards of behaviour of a state towards those over whom it exercises power. In this country, we have something called the dualist system for international law. Some treaties may get incorporated into our own domestic law, like the European Convention on Human Rights through the Human Rights Act. Others never form part of our law, but it's still the stated duty of government to seek to uphold and observe their terms. One of my principal duties as Attorney General and a law officer of the Crown was to ensure that this happened and that at least the government always had an arguable case that it was complying with its international legal obligations. Until 2015, there was also a specific reference to this in the Ministerial Code. This wording was then changed by David Cameron in a fit of pique, I think at being reminded too often about this point, probably by me. <laughs> but at the time, the Cabinet Office had to concede that the rewording made no difference. It was part of the principles of the rule of law. If it were abandoned, we would be sanctioning anarchy on the international stage, or at least even more of it than there is already. 
And United Kingdom governments, despite lapses, have been pretty good at observing its principles. After all, we went to war in 1914 over the violation of Belgian neutrality, which we had guaranteed, when the then-German Chancellor shamefully dismissed it as a scrap of paper. Not a week goes by without the Foreign Secretary telling Parliament of our determination to stand up for the international rules-based system. Such declarations are worthless if the government itself is not observing those rules. But it would be ignoring reality to pretend that this topic hasn't generated more friction between populist demands and the current principles on which the rule of law in this country is based. Some are currently questioning the value of international legal obligations, arguing we should reduce or, if necessary, ignore them. The process of leaving the EU has provided an impetus for this, as one of the key arguments for leaving was argued to be the need to free us from the direct effect of EU law. But as has become apparent, this isn't going to deliver the total freedom some sought. The UK government agreed, in order to reach a withdrawal treaty with the EU, which it considered advantageous, to accept the Northern Ireland Protocol which created the requirement that the UK introduce border checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in order to maintain Northern Ireland's continuance in the single market. My colleague, Geoffrey Cox, lost office as Attorney General for pointing out that the Prime Minister could not fail to put in those border checks without breaching the international treaty he had only signed up to three months before. Last autumn, the government nevertheless brought in the offending clauses of the Internal Markets Bill to renege on the protocol. This was accompanied by the frankly astonishing assertion from the new Attorney General, Suella Braverman, that this was permissible as Parliament was sovereign and could override the international legal obligation if it wanted to. This rather ignored the point that the obligation was on the United Kingdom government, which had deliberately chosen to break international law by bringing the offending clauses forward. It's perhaps ironic in the circumstances that it was then opposition in a sovereign parliament because of its damage to the country's international standing that effectively blocked this proposal for the present. But the EU isn't the only source of tension. I don't have time today and I wouldn't wish to get too diverted into the history of our adherence to the European Convention on Human Rights and its voluntary incorporation into our own law through the Human Rights Act. A reasoned examination suggests to me its overall impact has been beneficial. I think a view shared by most lawyers. Created in the 1950s, in large part by UK lawyers, it's been operated as a living instrument which has allowed it to develop organically and in accordance with social change, just as has our common law. Its application has produced landmark decisions which have halted practices which were once considered acceptable, but which would now be thought unacceptable by the overwhelming majority of the British public and those of Western democracies generally. That includes state discrimination against children on the grounds of illegitimacy, criminalization of homosexual acts, blanket retention of DNA obtained by the police from people neither charged nor convicted, flogging as a criminal punishment. I know there are still some people in this country who believe in it, but I think it's now quite a small minority. Um, excluding same-sex couples from new civil partnership laws, 
the presence of military officers sitting as judges in civilian courts. That doesn't affect us, but it affected some other signatory countries, placing a positive obligation on states to stop people trafficking. But of course, there are also potential downsides to any such form of international treaty making. Sometimes the European Court of Human Rights has produced unpopular or questionable decisions, as was that against the blanket UK ban on convicted prisoners voting in elections, although the issue was eventually resolved with a minute administrative change to give prisoners on temporary licence the right to vote. But criticism of judicial micromanagement is not necessarily invalid. It led to Lord Sumption's critique of the Convention in his recent Wreath Lectures. He considered that the rights which the Strasbourg Court have added by interpretation have changed the Convention from an expression of noble values into something meaner, a template against which to assess most aspects of domestic legal order, including some highly disputable ones, and the result has been to devalue the notion of universal human rights. He went on to say, many people will feel that some of the additional rights invented by Strasbourg ought to exist, I think so myself. But the real question is whether the decision ought to be made by judges. Lord Sumption didn't, however, advocate some particular solution beyond a call to Strasbourg and our own judges for restraint. And indeed, there is some evidence that that restraint is now coming in. The issue, however, for those who feel strongly that public opinion is being disregarded in this area is often one of principle. It's, of course, possible for us to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, repeal the Human Rights Act. It's our sovereign right to do that. But if we leave, it ends our role in the Council of Europe, the key forum that remains for us to exercise influence on matters of democracy and human rights in our European neighbourhood for our own and the benefit of others, and where our leading role has long been recognised. It would make it impossible to negotiate security and data-sharing agreements with the EU, as those require adherence to the European Convention on Human Rights if this is to happen. It would send a clear signal that we're downgrading our interest in promoting human rights internationally. And we would still have to observe many other international obligations, such as the UN Convention on Refugees, which limit our freedom of action, unless, of course, we decide to abandon them as well. Indeed, the current concerns of the Home Secretary over asylum-seeking migrants crossing the Channel in small boats absolutely encapsulates this issue. Unless their country of origin is prepared to have them back, which many are not, it is in practice proving virtually impossible to remove them, even if an asylum application fails. Unless we intend to use physical force to prevent them entering UK waters in danger to their lives, the only solution is international cooperation, which depends on observing the treaties that underpin it and striving to build on them. That this can work is sometimes clear. Our willingness to follow the Strasbourg Court judgment scrupulously in the case of the deportation of Abu Qatada, you may recall him, to Jordan, despite the fury of a section of the tabloid press, helped ensure permanent statutory reforms to the Jordanian criminal justice system, which were both needed and welcomed, as well as ultimately getting him deported. Our support for the Convention has thus both been useful to achieve other deportations in future and been seen as an achievement of British soft power on the international stage. And I simply gently raise the question as to whether that approach is the better one 
or launching polemical attacks on the French for not cooperating sufficiently in trying to stem the flow when the overall relationship is clearly in free fall between us and France at the moment so that an understanding is hard to reach. Behind that debate, there lurks the wider concern that activism by our own domestic judges might be undermining parliamentary sovereignty and democratic decisions. The Conservative Party manifesto of 2019 spoke of, I quote, ensuring that judicial review is available to protect the rights of individuals against an overbearing state while ensuring it isn't abused to conduct politics by another means. But there is actually little evidence of such abuse existing. And the recent report produced by Lord Folkes, who was asked to do it by the government, really came up with very few recommendations at all. Most of this has centred on the Brexit process, and particularly the two cases brought by Mrs Gina Miller and others. The first on triggering Article 50 without parliamentary involvement, the second on the peremptory prorogation of Parliament for a period of six weeks in mid-term, where the Supreme Court acted at the instance of a citizen by due process to review decisions taken by a government under prerogative powers. It's a well-established right and duty of courts to do just this. That was held as long ago as the 17th century by Sir Edward Cook. The government argued it was entitled under the prerogative to trigger Article 50 because its action was confined to our international treaty relations and the vast changes to EU law enjoyed under EU statutes were an incidental consequence of this, being action that Parliament had not expressly restricted. The Supreme Court disagreed, took the view that the changes to statute law that would inevitably follow needed a statute to sanction them. Despite the judges being attacked as enemies of the people and the then Justice Secretary failing dismally uh, to support them, uh, the reality, uh, they, they, were, they were doing nothing of the kind. They were not obstructing the referendum result. They actually helped to give the Brexit process a legal structure which was previously lacking. And the same can be said of the prorogation of Parliament in 2019. Suspending Parliament from sitting by executive diktat, except for the purpose of a few days necessary to start a new session or hold an election, was unprecedented in modern times. The action was declared null and void because the government could provide no reasonable explanation to justify preventing Parliament from carrying out its constitutional function. And that too, is a classical application of a fundamental principle of which there can be judicial review of an executive act. In making its unanimous decision, the Supreme Court correctly dismissed the argument that there were some prerogative acts done by ministers which were of such high policy that the courts couldn't review them. Now that's different argument from the one often accepted by our courts that they should refrain from pronouncing on the exercise of a power to which the law can provide no answer. The outcome may have been irritating for government, but it follows on legal principles that go back a very long way. Now, that's not to say that judges must always be right, even if one or two like to think so. But the working of a modern pluralist democracy is just not compatible with sidelining the courts in this way. Generally, the courts of the United Kingdom have shown great deference to Parliament and the judges are bound by their own oath to the Queen to act judicially. 
But of course, the louder government gets in promoting measures that might break the conventions that underpin this constitutional relationship between judiciary and government, well, the greater the risk of this deference being reduced. Now, I had some experience of this directly, because rather oddly, the one case which is cited, despite my own views, more than anyone, anything else in this matter, is that of the Prince of Wales' correspondence. So the correspondence had been with ministers under the previous Labour administration. It was my duty as Attorney General to decide whether or not to exercise the executive right of veto on their disclosure, provided in the Freedom of Information Act. I thereby overruled the decision of an upper tribunal, also made under the Act. The correspondence should be made public. I exercised that veto because my own conclusion was that on balance a public interest was entirely different from that of the tribunal. The Supreme Court struck my decision down, not on the basis that it was unreasonable, but because it considered that Parliament could not have intended to give a minister power to overrule a court. It chose to interpret the statute so as to confine the ministerial power so narrowly as to make that part of the Act unworkable in future. The judgment exposed some very sharp differences within the court. Two judges stated in dissenting judgments that the court was rewriting and not interpreting the statute. But I think a majority of the court were deeply concerned at what they saw as power given by Parliament to ministers to overrule a court decision contrary to what they considered to be established principles of the rule of law. They then engaged, I have to say, in some highly creative interpretation to find a way of negating it whilst avoiding a stark constitutional clash. But while this case is often cited as an example of judicial overreach, whatever one's opinion of the decision, it doesn't, in my view, mark some fundamental challenge to Parliament's authority. While the letters got published and proved rather less exciting than some had hoped, Parliament passed fresh legislation to protect such correspondence in future, just as it could actually have legislated further and effectively restored the original system provided for in the Act. The fact that the government didn't do it may just reflect that the original Act really wasn't properly thought through. The conflict with rule of law principles identified by the Supreme Court was undoubtedly unintended, simply not picked up when the Act passed through Parliament. Although philosophers talk of natural law, the reality, as I hope I've been able to sketch out this evening, is that all law is man-made, put together for the better regulation of human society. What I think is so unusual in this country is that the lack of any political revolution since the 17th century and the nature of that revolution has made many of our sources of law very old and provided incremental growth for the rule of law rather than the creation of law by code, which is what's happened in most other European states. As I've tried to show, however, the sources on which we rely and often take for granted are in fact very varied. Common law, statutes passed by Parliament, the international law to which the government signs up, and they function both alongside each other and also interlocked together. Obsessing about which should be dominant is to miss the point that without the existence of each of them, our rights and liberties and security would be damaged. 
The fact that there may at times be a degree of friction between them is a sign of health, not of some innate conflict between popular or populist sentiment and the rule of law. It's in fact exactly what one should expect in a free and democratic society where the moral and practical issues this friction raises can be debated and one hopes resolved without violence and hopefully also the outcome used for our common good. Writing in the 1980s, somebody who wasn't a lawyer, a journalist and historian, Paul Johnson, who wrote a book called The History of the English People, rather romantic work, but it's worth a read. He suggested this, he said, in a sense, the law is the only true English religion, the only body of doctrine in which the mass of ordinary Englishmen have consistently and passionately believed. It's impossible to turn to any period of English history where written records have survived without finding a huge and dogged conviction on the adequacy of the law, if only, and this is the vital qualification, it's administered according to tradition and custom. Complaints about the law are purely conservative in nature. It's not being observed, it's fallen into disuse, it's being obscured and perverted by innovation. Grievances are strident and incessant, but they are invariably directed at agents, not at the law itself, provided that modern accretions are periodically removed. And that seems to me to be the point. Because at what point does a modern accretion turn into tradition and custom? That is indeed so often the moot point in the debate. I would simply suggest to you in conclusion that rather than obsessing about this, we should simply count our blessings that we have such a rich and multi-stranded inheritance over which we can argue. Thank you very much.